capital culture has enabled a different and a new atmosphere in state politics. This is The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast going beyond the politics and policies to focus on the people who lead in our communities, states, and nation. Conversations that restore the civility we need in our politics while promoting the integrity we need in our leaders. The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a resource from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Well, Senator George Young, I am so thankful for you joining us on The Leaders We Need. I am excited for this conversation and really grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate being here. Well, and I I have to also say that you are my senator, and I have watched you lead in the state capitol, and I've had the privilege to get to know you for a few years, and I can safely say that I am extremely proud and very well represented in the Oklahoma State Capitol. And so you can you can just consider this another constituent call if you'd like. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, I would like to begin asking a question that we ask everyone who comes on the leaders we need, which is for you just to go back into your history a little bit and think about some people or maybe some experiences that really shaped your leadership, were really formative for you. Maybe at the time you didn't recognize that that's what they were doing, but when you look back, you can really see how formative they were to your leadership today. Well, you, you may have to stop me on this one because uh, this is where I, I, you know, after growing um, mature, older, <laughs> uh, you start reflecting on life, and I spend a lot of time because Old men have dreams. Young men have visions. And That's, so right. I have, That's right. Have lots of dreams. Uh, Joel, listen, man, when I stop and think almost daily, when I do my prayers in the morning and formal prayers in the morning and formal prayers at night before I go to bed, listen, I always start with the same two people. That's my mother and my father, man. Yeah. They're, they're, they were the greatest. They were and are the greatest two individuals in my life. And uh, it makes it even amazing to me as I think about them in that nature, because there were nine of us. Now, all of my siblings are still alive, except one brother next to the oldest brother. And uh, so there's eight of us who are still alive. And I'm next to the baby. <laughs> That's how I'm next to the baby. And so um, it is amazing when I stop to think about my mother and father, my Mother worked as a domestic for a short while, but uh, other than that, she was at home uh, every day when I came home from school, when I left to go to school yeah. and saw me off. My father was a stonemason, and so oh, really? uh, he worked He worked uh, uh, year-round. He said stonemason, and people think, well, he can only work in the summer or spring. Mm-hmm. when the weather. No, he did a lot of inside stone work, and, uh, and I know this because even being next to the baby, so you've gone through seven seven children and uh, it was three girls and six boys and uh, uh, when I, I came I had a chance to work with my father on many occasions so I mm-hmm. actually went to work with him made the mortar for him cut stone for him did all of that but uh, it, it my mother got her GED 
probably when I was eight, nine, ten years old, and my father, we still argue now whether he went from the uh, fourth grade to the eighth grade. We don't have any any evidence to prove either way, but every family reunion, that discussion is going to come up. Yeah. How much education did Daddy have? And and it's significant, Joel. In this, uh, I, I talk about my influence, but uh, my oldest brother went to Lincoln. Uh, university in Missouri on a football scholarship, went to ROTC. He retired as a colonel in the Army. He was a Green Beret, two terms there. And another brother who was probably one of the most astute uh, interior decorators of his time as far as being able to look at rooms and tell you measurements and those kind of things. And then the next brother was probably one of the most handy men with his hands that you would ever know. Mm. And at that point, the next was a sister, and she has a PhD in education. She's taught at Jackson State, Tuskegee University, all of those places. The next uh, brother retired as a colonel from the Army. He was in the Signal Corps, and uh, he also retired. The next sister has a, a doctorate in nursing, retires, retired out in Los Angeles. The next uh, sister uh, has a master's from the University of Chicago in social work, worked in DeKalb County for many years. Yeah. Uh, then it comes to me, and then I have a younger brother who's who's probably the closest to my father and mother because he liked being outside and doing work. But we, we uh, talk sometimes about what did our parents give us and neither one of them attended college. And you can imagine if, if I'm 67, my oldest brother's in his 80s, what, how did they transfer to us this idea and thought in the midst of pre-civil rights time, right. this idea that education was so important that you got to get it to be successful when neither one of them had the opportunity to do that. And um, that's the other discussion. We don't remember them ever pushing us, forcing us. We don't remember them ever uh, making us, but somehow they transferred and mm -hmm. translated to us life success as being successful when you, um, now we had to do our work, <laughs> you know, right. we bought school books home, you had to use them. And so uh, even they didn't know what we what, what we were studying, you had to do it. And, and when it comes to me, I, obviously you see the order. I had older sisters and brothers that um, obviously helped me immensely. And by the time I got old enough, 18, and was graduating from uh, high school in my neighborhood, I could take you back to my neighborhood in Memphis. And at that point, probably there were more college degrees in my house than it was on the whole street. Yeah. So, and, and it's just amazing because that yeah. <laughs> there is no explanation, logical explanation uh, for that to be, but that's the way it, it, it was. That's the way it is. And so when you talk about people who, and my father was a deacon in the church, I can take you in Memphis at Magnolia Baptist church in Castalia, which is a suburb. I mean, which is a, uh, uh community in Memphis, uh, the Magnolia Baptist Church, show you the stonework that my father built. And I could take you two blocks down and show you the first house I lived in, a stone house that he built. And then if we leave there, I could take you out to the second stone house mm -hmm. that I lived in. My father built both of the houses I lived in. I only lived in two houses my whole life. And so uh, just think about that, the level of education. But yet, you know, uh, I had a mother and a father. My, my father died uh, probably when I was 30 maybe and my mother died maybe 15 years ago and so uh I, I, god blessed me they both were very intimately involved in church i saw my mother 
pray. I saw my father pray. We went to church with them. Uh, their example, and and I think if you talk to any of my brothers and sisters, you get the same story I'm telling yeah, you, yeah. is that we've met a lot of great folk. We've met a lot of great folk who were instrumental in our lives, but I think all of our lives start with the fact that our parents were so uh, involved. How they could, you know, the other thing is at family reunion, we fuss all the time about who mama loved the most, you know, who was mama's favorite, you know. Yeah. So that was the arc. And I always win because I was sick as a baby. And so they had to put me back in the hospital. So I got that thing on them that I can tell them I yeah. was mama's favorite because she thought she had made me sick. So, so yeah, I, I start there. But I, obviously, there were other people. My high school basketball coach was probably one of the most, he was, I went to, a, from kindergarten to eighth grade, went to all black school, from uh, ninth grade to high school, went to an integrated school, and uh, my high school basketball coach, um, you're talking about 69, 1969, in Memphis, <laughs> in Memphis, yeah. uh, white, he was a white guy, um, just, uh, you know, I, I was a point guard, so, you know, I was kind of uh, controlling things for him, I started, started all years, you know, I, I love basketball, I was pretty you know, yeah. played at a small college, but in high school, he really did have trust and confidence in me, and he gave me that. And um, you know, that was my first interaction on a personal level with someone of a different race. And I'm telling you, man, um, Coach uh, Robert Baker was um, just one of the most instrumental folk in my lives. And then, if I, I said the second person was my bookkeeping teacher. You know, my undergrad degree mm -hmm. is in accounting, and uh, about the tenth grade. I saw all the girls going into this class and I wanted to find out what class it was and it was bookkeeping. So I thought, hey, you know, you know I don't know anything about bookkeeping. I really don't want to know anything about bookkeeping. Yeah. All the girls are going there and that's where I want to go. So I just, there, the yeah. fell in love with it, Joe. Fell in love with, with, with the book With the bookkeeping or the other students that... Were... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, listen, it was the student, it was the students, the female students that drew me to it, but... I fell in love with accounting. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I graduated high school, I knew what I wanted to major in. I majored yeah. in accounting. And Ms. Ramsey was the one who really helped me to see the significance and importance of accounting, the language of business. I can remember what she used to say. And uh, my undergraduate degree, I got I got in accounting and uh, went off to college, played a little basketball in a small college in Jackson, Tennessee, and uh, got a degree in accounting. And um uh, from there, uh, we go. But but if I look at it, you know, I can tell you those those folk. I, I always had pastors in my lives, but when I look at those folk who were instrumental, I started my mother and father, and then outside of the home, it was it was it was Coach Baker. It was Coach Baker, and then yeah. Miss Ramsey, which were both white people. Who again, I, I keep emphasizing that because those were the two uh, people of another race that I came in contact with. That that gave me this idea that, you know what, what I see on TV, when I see the race rides, when I when I was there when Dr. King was assassinated, I saw the difference in the races. I saw the mistreatment of African-Americans. I knew history. I knew about slavery. I knew about Jim Crow. I knew about Reconstruction. But to have these two individuals who went out of their way mm -hmm. to say to me, you know, you can make it. You are as good as anyone else you uh, to have them to put that into me uh i have to stop and and give god credit for my parents and then for those two individuals in particular because obviously that was a different kind of uh, uh path 
that that helped me to I, I think to this moment and, and why I, I probably have an ability for someone my age to uh, not to, to see the things that are going on now and, and not throw up my hands and, and say, you know, it's we'll never we'll never work this out. We'll never right. get raised to a point where we can do it. I believe we can. And it goes back through me first to my parents, but then because my parents never taught me hatred. My parents never taught me uh, uh, anger at people just because of how they look. Matter of fact, you know, I was taught that you treat everybody the same. And what I just said a few minutes ago, my mother said quite often, you are, you are, you are not better than anyone, but you're as good as everyone. Yeah. And so wow. that was really, happening to me. And I was expected, I was expected to carry my weight. And I appreciate so much and, and share this sense of optimism. We can move forward, can get through it. There's there's no question that there is a heaviness in our nation, in our culture and society right now. I believe it's kind of stirred an aspirational feeling in us. We we look at what where things are and we we're not okay with it. This is not where we want to be. And now it's conversations like this, and I, I really want to want to keep keep hearing from you because it's conversations like this where we can start to move from that aspirational sense of, of we want better to let's talk about the practical ways we can sure. start to work together and move forward. Cause I share, I share that optimism and, and clearly you transitioned into pastoral work and pastoral ministry. And, and that's something you've done for years and still serve the church today in different capacities. One thing, because there's so much I want to talk to you about, and, and I know if we start talking about your ministry experience, uh, I'll, I'll lose what time you have, but I will say that from my observation, getting to know you and see you, something that stands out to me, and it's something that I learned in my growth and development. I grew up in Central Texas. I had a model of pastoral ministry often around me that's kind of the fire in the belly and the spirit inspired right. let's let's lead and i and i appreciate that and i have i have pastors that i grew up under that really modeled that and i've learned a lot from them but when i moved to dc and moved into ministry i got introduced to this model of pastor as statesman right. and that role of from the posture of the church and and a pastor being also a person of leadership in the community. And I, I look at you and I I see that as well, that pastor is statesman. And clearly there's something to that because you made the shift then into public office. Where did that originate for you, the desire to run for office? Yeah, that, that's another interesting story. When I was in college, uh, and, and uh, I have to say, I uh, got my degree in three years. I mean, three years summer didn't not with summer school the first two years but i graduated in may of the yeah. third year and it was because of uh, uh looking at that bulletin and going through and saying i got to get out of here and, <laughs> uh, get get to work because there's some things going on in my life that i need to take care of um but the third year was around the time when a gentleman by the name of harold ford ran for congress in this in uh, uh memphis chevy county and he was the first african-american um, not maybe to run, but he was the first African American in my time for me to recognize to run for Congress from the state of Tennessee, and particularly from my particular state. And he won. And when he won, that so uh, affected all of us, all of young African Americans, that we too could assume <clears throat> that mantle to be able. And we saw 
what impact that had. His winning was was just uh, uh, lifted the spirits of, of all of us, in particular as young people, who then wanted to see politics as a way to change things. And so that's when I really got bit by the bull. But you remember that time was the time of Martin Luther King, Dr. King had been assassinated, but after mm-hmm. post Dr. King and things that were going on, the opportunities that were opening up to African-Americans were greater then. And so you had all of that. And he won that race to be a, a United States congressperson from the state of Tennessee, an African-American. And so it was, it was just wonderful. And, and about that same time when I graduated, um, um, I, I, before I graduated, I wanted to run for office. I mean, I wanted to run then. I wanted yeah. to do it. And about that time is when I started struggling with the call to ministry that yeah. I'd got when I was 13. So yeah. I ran all of that time from 13 years old to 21 years old. I kind of kept that to myself, didn't say anything, and tried to hide that as much as I could got my first job, got transferred from Memphis to California, got transferred from California to Oklahoma. And I guess God said, okay, listen, we're not, we're not playing this game anymore. I've given you time that you either go, I literally, I think God said, you're either going to acknowledge my call or you're going to die. And, yeah. and dying, listen, dying is not always, we used to sit back home in Memphis, graveyard dead. There are a lot of living dead walking around. I'm not talking about zombies either. So people whose lives are just, you know, just caved in. It's just nothing going on. I, I thought at that point then that I better acknowledge my call to ministry. And when I acknowledged my call to ministry because of the different locations I'd been in, never had a chance to fulfill that dream of running for office. I acknowledged my call to ministry, uh, Joel, and uh, I went into chaplaincy. And about a year after I went into full-time chaplaincy, it was about when I got my call to my first church. And I read a book by a guy named Samuel Proctor, who used to work with um, uh, in the Kennedy administration uh, with Sergeant Shriver, matter of fact, with the Peace Corps. In his book, there's a there's a section in, his, in the book that I read, and Sergeant uh, Samuel Proctor was a great preacher, great pastor, but he uh, said in, in this first section of the book, he said he got up one morning and went into the bathroom was shaving and looked in the mirror. And he said, he looked in the mirror and he said to himself, what are you doing? You're sitting in meetings where they're talking about collateral damage. It was during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. How many folk would die? How many folk would live? How many folk would make it? And, and you know, looking at lives as just pieces of puzzle. And he said, right then, God said to him, I called you to be on one end of the spectrum because I called you to balance this thing out. And you have moved too close to the other end and you are causing things in his life. I don't think he meant worldwide, but in his life that are throw, that made things out of balance. And he said that day he resigned from the Peace Corps and working with Sergeant Shriver and the Kennedy administration because he knew his place in life and he knew his place that he was supposed to have and so uh, when i read that i promised god that i'd never run for office as long as i was full-time in the ministry mm-hmm. and uh, and i never did and i didn't run for office until uh i retired from 30 years of pastoring in 2013 and 2014 i ran for office and got elected and so uh that's that's the journey i always mm-hmm. wanted to do it it was always something i wanted to do but um uh, refused to do it uh, because I had made God that promise that I never would run for office as long as I was full-time pastoring in the ministry. Mm. And then you were elected to the House, and Mm -hmm. you're the 
first person who's joined us on The Leaders We Need, who's made that move from serving as a representative in the Oklahoma House to the state Senate. And we Mm. have listeners who are interested in running for office one day and serving and and potentially serving in the state capitol and the legislature. And so your unique insights on having made that shift, I think, would be really helpful to just consider what are the differences from having served on either side, both sides of the rotunda? What made you decide to make that shift? Well, and and then you have to understand not not just Oklahoma politics, but you have to understand Oklahoma City politics. So that's part of that that shift was as a House member, there were two um, uh, representatives, two African-American representatives from uh, Oklahoma City that represent uh, the majority black uh, population in Oklahoma City, northeast Oklahoma City, parts of northwest Oklahoma City. And so uh, the year that my second, after my second term, the senator, and there was only one black senator, there were only two black senators in, in the Senate of Oklahoma, one from Tulsa and one from Oklahoma City, because that's that's where you got the masses. Um, but uh, so what happened, that the senator from Oklahoma City turned out. And so that slot was open. I was the most senior uh, representative, but, you know, it, it wasn't automatic because I was, uh, vice chair of the uh, uh, caucus in the House, in the Democratic caucus in the House. And so I had a leadership position and it quite mm-hmm. possible I would have been either caucus leader or minority leader yeah. if I had stayed in the House. It was quite possible for that to happen uh, because, and you asked another question, I'll throw this in and get back to it. What's the what's the one thing that uh, someone who's running for office need to realize coming into office is, is that it, it's important Parties are important. That's just mm-hmm. that's philosophical and programmatic policy related. That's important. But relationships are the ultimate thing when you get into politics. And I thought and I thought I, I tried my best going back to what I said to you about my mother and father, going back to what I said to you about Coach Baker and Miss Ramsey. I tried to make relationships. And I thought I did a pretty good job with that. So I had a good opportunity, I think, to have moved up not only as vice chair of the caucus, but to have been minority leader in the House in the Democratic Party. So that was it. But this is what occurred. I had many folk who approached me and said, we don't have, there's only two slots in the Senate, and we'd have to have someone new to run for that position, to be in that slot. Yeah. who do not have the experience. And and the Senate is ultimately very important when it comes to policy and it comes to a lot of different things because of the differences between the House and the Senate. And uh, I was, you know, I, 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 they came to me and they lobbied me to run for that Senate spot for the sake of Oklahoma City and the districts and Northeast Oklahoma City. Yeah. And so I acquiesced. At the end, that, that really worn out, you know, or worn out among all other reasons, uh, my ability to want to be a leader, all those things went out to wonder when when I, I believe that God said, no, that's that's the route I want you. I want you yeah. there because I think that's best for the whole. You right. may not like it. <laughs> yeah. You may have some other ideas, but the whole, and I, and I prayed about that. So that's, that's why I made the transition. Uh, as far as work is concerned, Joel, the House and the Senate do very similar stuff. There's a couple of things. Uh, we do nominations and that kind of thing. The House is the only party that can bring up revenue producing bills, so we can't do that in the Senate. But obviously with the nominating 
uh, having the ability to approve nominations is, is very important. And so to have a senator there, but just the leadership positions, only 48 senators. And so you have, uh, you know, you, you have a, a better opportunity to be heard out of 48 folk than 101 in the House. And that was the other reason that people wanted to say, hey, you, you, we need your voice. We need to hear uh, because of your experience. Not just smarter than anyone, but your experience would help us in that position. So that's what helped me make the transition and run for the Senate. Uh, the work, the work is is the same. Let me let me very similar to the same. You're dealing with people, but I go back to what I said in the middle of all of that is I think that I've done a good job informing relationships. This mm -hmm. has been a different year uh, with COVID and all of that, but sure. I tried my best to form relationships across that whole body. And it's been a little more difficult this year to be perfectly honest with you uh, because of many things, COVID, uh, all of the things, the environment in the United States on mm -hmm. last year. All of those things make it different. But I, I was pleased when I got back. You know, I stayed out for six weeks because of COVID until I got my shots. And I was somewhat protesting because they didn't mandate masks in the Senate for the elected officials. But I, I, I'm 65, 66, yeah. and I didn't want to uh, come back in and put myself in danger. And so they made a way for me to operate from home. I did that. But I tell you, it was very rewarding for me, very surprising when I did come back after six weeks into the session. And the response of many individuals here uh, in the Senate who simply said to me, we miss you. I'm very thankful that you really elaborated and shared that journey in making that decision because I've had conversations with members of the House that recognize, as you did, they're rising into leadership roles and leadership positions. And I, I visited with a member of the House who had a similar opportunity to pursue a Senate seat and they made the other decision because of their opportunities for leadership roles. They, mm -hmm. they stayed in the House. And so understanding how you're all leaders, you're all elected leaders and sure. you're, you're representing your district. But then there's leaders among leaders and there's a function right. And, right. A, and, a, and a way in which things move productively through the process and the session mm -hmm. and your ability to take that leadership voice that you have and provide a greater good to the whole big picture and make that shift. I wondered if you were going to say it's because you only have to run every four years instead of every two. That helps. That helps. <laughs> well, that helps. Well, what about the culture? You talked a little bit about just the nuts and bolts of the policymaking process, but would you describe, would you, do you think that there is a difference in culture of the two chambers and, and the way in which things are done? And it's, it's interesting you would bring that up because uh, the, the Latin word for uh, senator, cynex, comes from Latin, and it means old men. <laughs> so, so, so you start with that. Start, start right there with that. And for whatever reason, I, I, if you did a median average age in the Senate, you know, it would be older than, than that over in the House. It just, it just would be. Why that is, I don't know. It may be yeah. because of the respect for the smaller body. I don't know. Uh, but the culture is a bit different. It is a bit more, I'm not, it's not relaxed, but it's yeah. a, a bit more, and, and I use this word not politically, conservative. It's just, you know, right. most of the gentlemen and the young, and the young ladies, the women in the Senate are, uh, uh, a mature. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would be very surprised if we had raised voices. Probably my voice is probably the only voice that gets raised in the Senate. But uh, raised voices, uh, you know, there are disagreements. Don't get me wrong. There are disagreements. Sure. We don't, you know, get along that well that they're not disagreements. But uh, it, it seems to be something that 
that we work with, we live with. And from my time in the Senate, it has been been that way. And so the culture is more or less uh, uh, kind of uh, dictated, I think, by the individuals and those individuals are are older. Now, as I said that, let's keep in mind that political parties play a part in that. And obviously our political uh, makeup in the House and in the Senate is so out of whack that the Republicans have a super majority. And so that that plays a part also in that um, you have really when you look at it as a as a Democrat, there's nine Democrats in the Senate out of 48. And so you need 26 to pass a bill. So, you know, you don't really need us to do anything. Uh, but even with that, I want to be honest with you, I feel well respected. Mm-hmm. in the Senate. I feel like people treat me like they treat everybody else and they hear my voice. Do I have to speak louder sometimes about some issues that no one else is going to talk about? Of course, of course I do. Uh, of course, there are some issues that, that are going to be significant to me and the people I serve that's not going to be relevant to uh, anyone else in the state because the majority of the uh, representation in the Senate and in the House are from rural areas. They're not mm-hmm. metropolitan folk. And so uh, not only do I have that urban uh, voice that has to be heard, but I have that minority voice that has to be heard also. And so uh, and it's still with that, you know, I don't, they're not passing my stuff. They're, my bills are not passing. Don't get me wrong. But I, I feel, I feel respected. I, I don't think anybody... Is walking over me or trying to mm-hmm. misuse me, and so, and I think they know I'm there, and uh, so I think that's important. I think that's important. Get my bills passed. No, I don't get my bills. Passed. But you, you hear what I'm saying. There's, yeah. there's this level. I think that that you know, it, it, it's frustrating sometimes, but um, I, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy the people I'm doing it with, and so. Uh, I, I think that that's a big part of it is that the makeup of the and, I, and I, likewise in the house there's a little more raucous over in the house let me just tell you that right now they, oh, yeah, they, yeah. so many of them they get really loud and so you got a, a large group of folk and so uh, and they're a bit younger and so uh, it, it's there is a different environment let's, mm. let's establish that but uh, I think it's an environment that gets things done maybe not to the way many of us would like who are in the minority party but but things get done and work gets done and we may not like it, but hey, be frustrated with it, but it gets done. So yeah, yeah it, it, all of that is a part of uh, what occurs on a daily basis uh, at the state capitol. Thank you for listening to The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Oklahoma Capital Culture is a nonprofit organization shaping a culture of civility, integrity, and servant leadership among policymakers through nonpolitical and nonpartisan engagement. Learn more about Oklahoma Capital Culture and how you can help shape the leadership culture at www.capitalculture.com. Original music heard on The Leaders We Need, provided by Scott Allen Matthews at mypodcastmusic.com.